0: They love in the crew, they love in the crew, they love in the crew, or oh, they love in the crew, or they love in the crew, they love in the crew, they love in the crew, they love in the crew. Oh.
1: Yeah.
2: Hello and welcome to Crucial Conversations. I'm your girl Naya. Hey, I'm Dion. Hey, I am Kay am joy. So there's pretty much this unwritten rule that within the minority community that we just don't need to seek therapy or counseling. And this is so far from the truth. According to the National Center for Biotechnology Information, 63% of Latinos, 68% of Asians, and 58% of African Americans experience symptoms of depression. An estimate of 56% have yet to seek professional help. To assist us with tackling this discussion, we've called upon someone who has way more experience than us. Our guest is a licensed professional counselor who specializes in women issues and trauma recovery. Let's welcome our guest, Aliyah Aranue.
1: Ooh, okay. Ooh. Hi, everyone. she
2: said
3: it,
1: okay.
3: Yeah. More pronunciation. <laughs> nice. Thank good. you so
4: much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here.
4: Yes, Um, we're really excited to have you on. Like we've had some, like a part of a lot of our episodes, we talked about things that touch on this issue, like mental health and and stress. Um, But one thing I did want to ask you before we get into a lot of our um, (laughs) discussion, um, you described that you do expressive and creative interventions. And so I just want to know a little more about that. Like, what does that look like or mean? Absolutely.
1: Um, So I am a Latin dancer on the side. So in my private life, it's been my form of self-care. It started with a weight loss journey. I started doing Zumba and then just kind of progressed into that. Um, And so I do salsa, bachata, I've performed and all of that. And I've found it to be very healing for myself, you know, and resolving like a lot of body-based stuff. Uh, And so, you know, Having that experience and then reading the book, The Body Keeps Score, which has been like amazing. It really gives an idea of how we tend to hold trauma in the body, how, you know, we carry it every day. We may not realize it um, because it has a way of manifesting in that way. And so, you know, for me and my own personal experience, I said, okay, this is something that I have to incorporate into my practice. And so what I like to do, for instance, one of the things because I create programs. And so one of the programs that I have now that COVID is kind of cramping. Um, is a couples program, because I do a lot of couples counseling. Uh, You know, you figure if there is trauma, if any one of the individuals in a relationship have trauma, sometimes it shows up, Um, and sometimes it gets in the way of intimacy. And so I have a program where we're going through a series of Latin dances, and the dances, and not just Latin, I have African uh, dancing in there as well, and they're partner dances. So you have to be in each other's faces, holding each other. You have to have a lot of trust in the, in the, uh, between the two in order to do the dances and make it work. And so we, um, do salsa, we do bachata, which is like a romantic, like I'm holding you kind of dance. Um, and then we do, I love rumba, and that's more of a playful dance. It's like a chase, you know, coming after you, trying to chase you. And then the last one that, um, we're, we're incorporating is Kizomba, which is from Angola. Um, and so that one is a very, very still movement type of You yeah. have to be very in tune with your partner to do that dance. And so these are just examples of ways um, that I like to incorporate body movement into you know, the work that I do. I'm also working on a program for um, sexual trauma recovery incorporating African dance. So thanks for that. That
5: sounds amazing. I like that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.
5: You should start a virtual class as well.
1: I want to. I have to push past the anxiety of being, I don't know, like, I feel like it's so much easier to connect to individuals when they're in front of you,
0: yeah. and so it's
1: a little bit of a disconnect for me, so it's hard, but I definitely want to, I think I might have to at least do the, the couples program virtually because I really want to kick that off, um, but COVID is just...
4: Yeah. Hating. Yeah. Like in the way, yeah, in the way. Something that we you mentioned earlier about, like, um, like how it affects the body, and one thing that I know, I know is, or I just recently learned, like how trauma affects, you know, different aspects of the body, like the immune system and brain function, and um, you know, the hormonal system, and even how like our DNA is is read and transcribed. And so um, what are your thoughts? Like, you know, like, what do you think that uh, have you witnessed specifically and how that manifests itself?
1: Sure. Um, So I've definitely had, you know, situations where I've worked with individuals who have had um, previous trauma, especially sexual trauma. And they'll say to me things like, you know, Leah, I just feel really numb in these experiences that I have, you know, when I'm present, you know, and intimate relation with with someone else or you know just you know at all just being present in my body there's a lot a lot of times I see um like weight issues and so that looks like extreme dieting uh that can look like um just a total you know neglect of the body and so that's weight gain and poor hygiene and things like that um and then I also see a lot of things like migraines a lot of Um, You know, when we're talking about movement stuff, a lot of individuals with sexual trauma will hold a lot of tension in the hips, and so it's really tight in that area, Um, a lot of stiffness, um, just a lot of tension within the body, and so that's, you know, how I see it in the two sides, right? How it shows up if we're doing talk therapy, and then also, too, how I experience it in the movement work that I do. Um, Individuals feeling very uncomfortable, even, you know, dancing and expressing themselves in a very body-based way.
2: What made you actually choose this career path as far as being a therapist and counselor? Sure.
1: Um, So I decided to be a therapist because I grew up in um, an environment where there wasn't really a lot of talk about mental health. Um, My stepfather was a military. um, He was in the Army, so he was a soldier. So I grew up on military bases, and I was exposed to a lot of domestic violence and a lot of... um, you know, just trauma, addiction, and all of that stuff. And a lot of times, you know, the soldiers who were sort of bringing this violence into the home, at least from my, you know, experience, the families felt like, well, I can't report this person because mm-hmm. this person is providing us with our livelihood. You know, mm-hmm. we can't risk, um, or we're in a foreign country. And, right. you know, so there's not really a lot of, you um, there wasn't a lot of protection. and There were a lot of things that I saw growing up that I just didn't understand that really stuck with me. And so uh, a lot of ways I felt very voiceless and I felt like mm-hmm. nobody was really there to uh, support those of us who were in the trenches of that kind of trauma. And so I decided that I wanted to do work around that. First, I wanted to understand it for myself and apply it to my family and taunt all of them, uh, <laughs> you know, which yeah. they hated. Um, <laughs> but I wanted everyone to heal, you know. Uh, so that was my reason for doing it. I wanted to be, you know, that person for someone else that I needed when I was going through those experiences growing up. Wow. That's big. Yeah.
2: and you, and you had mentioned that, um, you felt that people felt voiceless mm-hmm. and even yourself, like at a time you felt kind of voiceless, how as a friend or coworker, You know, what are tips that you would give to kind of help people that feel voiceless kind of work their way to finding their voice?
1: Sure. I think I think the most important step and I do a lot of this in the work that I do with the individuals that I I see. Um, I think a lot of it is first finding, you know, what that voice or, or I guess reconnecting to that voice because it's there. You know, that part of you is very much there, even though you feel like it's not. You can't even speak up about these things. And so, a lot of times, I like to start with journaling work. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I'll ask them, like, who are you for you? Right. Because a lot of times, women show up, and when you ask them who they are, they'll identify themselves by all the different roles that they play and all the different things that they are to everyone else. And so, I'll ask them, you know, who are you for you? And a lot of times, it's a hard question to answer. So,
0: mm-hmm. they
1: got to sit with it. And, um, so that's my personal way and my style of therapy to get individuals to reconnect to their voice is by finding that voice and really getting clear about you know what she wants to say um, and how comfortable she feels and you know gradually go from there whether that looks like maybe doing some sort of narrative therapy which would incorporate you telling a story or telling your story rather um, or if you are you know if that means let's identify some people you want to share your story with or you want to be able to to use that voice, or what does it look like, maybe two, three months from now, um, and they're steadily working towards those goals. So I would tell you know somebody who is interested in, in starting that work to certainly start with journaling and exploring themselves and exploring you know what that voice even wants to say, and then from there figuring out what that looks like in that path of healing, because it. You know, for some people, it looks like going out and sharing my story on a larger scale. And for others, it doesn't,
0: you know. Mm-hmm.
1: So it's just a matter of figuring out what that looks like for you. Yeah. And then, like, building a support system around you as you do that work.
4: Yeah, for sure. So on that, like, um, that note about finding your voice and, and all that. Um, so a lot of children and or or people that had parents who were mentally or dealt with anyone who was mentally ill. Yeah. Um, Usually, you know, have to, they seek help to deal with people that won't seek help. So what do you say to the child or what do you recommend someone whose child and being raised by a mentally ill parent that they do? Like, what are their options? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So in situations like that, if you were, if I were to be working with a child who had a mentally ill parent, then that looks like a lot of. Um, You know, just really giving a lot of psychoeducation to that family, I would approach it as a family um, therapy as opposed to just specifically individual. I would definitely do individual work with the child and if I could with the parent. Um, But it's a family dynamic type of approach that I would take um, and really helping the family to understand what it is that they're dealing with, what these symptoms are, what the red flags are, helping to empower the parent who has mental illness to Um, advocate for themselves and say, hey, listen, I need a break, or these are my red flags, this is how you can support me, this is when, you know, um, maybe someone else needs to help me with the child because the child's safety is important. Uh, It would look like, you know, linking the kid to supports in the community if there are any, um, certainly, like, groups and things like that, Uh, you know. But just really, I think, minimizing the harm. If I was working with a child that was, like, currently in that situation, my primary... um, approach would be to minimize the harm and to sort of empower the family with education on what they're dealing with.
3: So building on Kay's example, I would imagine that oftentimes the the parent that is dealing with that mental illness may be unwilling to get help or be involved in, in those sessions, you know, where a family approach would be ideal. Um, that may not be an option. So I would imagine then, you know, it would be a different approach and then focusing on on the child and helping them cope.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then if there is a situation where the child is, you know, in harm and the parent is not compliant, then that looks like maybe, you know, um, calling in some additional supports, maybe through, um, you know, uh, DCPNP, which is,
0: um, you know,
1: you know what used to be dyfus um you know because sometimes they need that incentive like I got this caseworker showing up at my door and making sure I go to these parenting classes and yeah. making sure I take my medication and all of that stuff um because you know the goal is to keep the child in the family the goal is not to take the child away from the family and so if I'm not able in my role as the outpatient counselor to get the parents to comply and there was concern for the safety of the of the child then I certainly would. Um, I have a duty to.
3: That's a good segue into, you know, at a macro level, just issues that, you know, we see in minority communities, particularly in Black communities where there's this stigma or this fear, just this reservation about going to therapy. So whether, you know, the parent in that case has a mental illness or not, they're just not with it. Like, I am not here for group therapy sessions. We don't do therapy in this, you know, in this family. Can you talk to us a little bit more about, you know in your experience where that fear and where that stigma um you know is rooted
1: sure. I could talk about that all day
3: <laughs> yeah, how, you know how we can just normalize that and make it yes.
1: more conversation in our community of course um so it becomes a challenge because a lot of times in you know black and brown communities we don't really see mental illness for what it is so we'll say, oh, you know, I just got a nervous stomach when it's really like you got anxiety or you got agoraphobia, you can't leave your house or, you know, grandma's having panic attacks or, you know, uncle so-and-so has depression or schizophrenia. We don't really call things what they are. Um, mm-hmm. And we try to manage it within the family, uh, try to minimize it. And so that gets call it. my a crazy uncle. Be like, oh, yeah, just my, my crazy uncle. uncle. Yeah. You know what I mean? Meanwhile, you know, things are crazy for real. Right. Punching holes (laughs) in the walls and, you know, know, the kids are scared at night. And, you know, there's a lot of that. And we aren't really or just the denial of depression. I remember when I first came into this field and just I remember when I told someone I wanted to be a therapist and they were like, you'll never make any money because you're black and black people don't go to therapy and white people gonna come to you.
2: (laughs) We fix that. We fix everything by prayer. We're going right.
1: to pray it away. Right. We pray it away. We <laughs> okay, go to church. Right. We stay within the family. Yeah. Um, and so that certainly, and that's not to say the church doesn't serve a, a role in, in, you know, helping us manage it. But sometimes, you know, things are deeper than that. And it mm-hmm. and needs to be additional support. So that looks like, you know, medication and talking to someone who's safe a lot of times in the churches you know, there is a very heavy family component to it. Like you go to church and you, your family goes to church and everybody, you know, maybe your, your grandmother's in the choir and you know what I mean? So
0: if it
1: feels like, it. is this even a safe place for me to talk to right. this person right. about what I'm dealing with? Um, and so, you know, in counseling, it's an opportunity to, to be able to speak in a safe place where what you're saying is not repeated and you're able to get the resources that you need. But it's scary for Uh, black and brown people, because you figure in the past, you know, it was built to keep us oppressed. And so they were justifying the mistreatment and the dehumanization of black and brown bodies by saying that we had all kinds of ailments and illnesses and things like that. And so there's a general mistrust, I think, for for us with any of the medical communities or Mm -hmm. mental health communities. And um, I think that that just continues to play out this day. And I think that we have to, we we are starting to turn around and wake up, right? Like you figure with depression, especially in um, black and brown boys, you know what I mean? A lot of times it's manifesting as anger. And so they're treated like they are destructive and aggressive and problematic, um, especially in school systems and things like that. When what you're looking at is depression and you're looking at maybe it's a kid who has someone else at home who's mentally ill and they don't know how to handle that. Mm -hmm. So they are starting to act out. And so... um, I think that we as a community are starting to wake up to the importance of mental health and understanding that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's necessary to be informed and it's necessary to get that support. And I think, especially for black women, we've always been socialized to be, um, you know, the workhorse, like we just carry everything on our shoulders. be Strong. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't ain't nothing wrong. You know, you strong, you can't be anything but that. And I think that, you know, in this generation and, and, you know, younger generations, we see that how that is manifested in our families. So with the ailments and the illnesses and mm-hmm. all that stuff, you know, you know, maybe grandma or auntie dying and not having any happiness and, you know, all of these things. And and we want better for ourselves and we want to um, take care of ourselves. And we realize that it's no longer acceptable to just push through it. So. Yeah. So
5: I, I have a question. Would you... Sure say that mental illness or depression is hereditary
1: there's definitely a hereditary component to it, and there's always been like a a debate about that like nature versus nurture how much of it is um, built into the DNA and then how much of it is from you being raised in certain environments and I think it's a little bit of both Uh, I think that you can certainly develop um, like certain illnesses mental illnesses like schizophrenia we've seen you know, passed down our generations. Anxiety, for sure, like anxiety in my family is like, you can't be a member of the family if you don't got some type of anxiety. <laughs> um, <it's insane. laughs> you know, but it's also something that nobody would have known until yeah. Aaliyah yeah. became a therapist and we started having these conversations. But, you know, to your question, absolutely, there is that component of it that is genetic that can be passed down. Um, you know, just like with addiction there, you know, there are just those components yes. in DNA that we have to be mindful of. And so it's important, again, to call a thing a thing mm-hmm. and identify what it is that you're seeing mm-hmm. so that you can be prepared and structure your life so that it doesn't, um, you know, you don't fall into those same patterns. And then your children as well, you can, you can support them, you know, moving forward. So
4: I think about, it makes me think about the crime going on in our cities. And and I hate to throw up the city because it's always like the one people throw up, but Chicago and like Baltimore and like Philly. Um, And a lot of people just say like, oh, they just need to stop the crime. this black on black crime, just stop it. And I feel like that's such a simplistic view of what's going on in these communities. And I can't help but think like this is an example of generational trauma where these young men don't value life, like not their own, and not anyone else's. And that just, and I don't know if it's in, in their DNA from, you know, just generation to generation of oppression and, and, and just the things that you see in these communities, or if it's just um, a lack of dealing with the mental trauma that's going on within these communities is why this thing, it just seems to be spiraling out of control.
1: Yeah. I, again, I would say it's definitely a mixture of all of those things mm-hmm. Add those DNA components or those genetic components, but then you add the learned helplessness that we develop. And I remember uh, learning about it in graduate school, maybe even undergrad, and they were talking about uh, the the experiment. I can't remember the name of it, but with dogs and they had dogs and um, electric cages and they would put food, they would open it and they would put food at, um, on the outside and the dogs, whenever they would try to escape the cage, they would get electrocuted. And so then after a while, even when they turned the electricity off and they raised the gate and they had the food there, the dogs would just lay there. They wouldn't even try anymore. And I remember thinking, oh, this is so sad. But then, you know, as I as I became more aware, seeing how that plays out in our community how we have that learned helplessness, right? It's like I see, if I'm seeing over and over again, despair and addiction and abuse and trauma and police violence and, you know, um, if I'm surrounded by these things and if people that I know are dying and, you know, nobody's really making it far, maybe the furthest they can make it is, you know, to be a successful drug dealer or right. pimp man or whatever the case may be, then I've, I have have learned helplessness. I don't believe that people like me are going to make it anywhere. So mm-hmm. I don't even try. You know, so when you add that component of it, and then the lack of resources that are in the community and Mm -hmm. the lack of education about mental illness and Mm -hmm. um, attitudes towards especially black and brown children and how they're assumed to already be, um, you know, they're assumed, they're looked at as though they're older than they are, number one. Mm -hmm. um, And they're treated as though you're always up to something bad. You're always you know, looking to get into some trouble. And so we have to manage you a certain way. It's all of those different microaggressions that they're experiencing in the school systems within their community. Um, you know, it, it really takes a toll. It takes a toll. And I think that all that we see is just a manifestation of all of those things coming together. I oh, totally
5: agree. Does. Does uh, depression and or mental illness affect boys and girls and or men or women differently?
1: Mm, That's a good question. I don't know that it affects um, people differently based on their gender. That would be something I have to see if there's any updated research around. But I know that, you know, for some people, it it can affect them in ways that look like anger. You know, for other people, um, it looks like shutting down and it really kind of depends on your own genetic makeup and who you are as a person and how you sort of deal with stress. Um, you know, some people have higher functioning depression and so, um, you know, they're able to get out and, and function in the world, but then they kind of check out, you know, when they're home or, um, and then anxiety and depression go hand in hand a lot of times. So you'll see, um, just a management of that anxiety on a higher level and that looks like overachieving and, you know perfectionism and all of that stuff so i think um you know it really depends on the type of individual rather than the the gender mm-hmm. although i will say that um if you're talking about emotional expression i think boys are socialized and men are socialized to um the only really appropriate emotion that they can show is that anger um, and so a lot of times it'll default to that anger so it's not to say that they experience anger on a different level but i think that they might feel like this is the only way that I can express um, and sort of like, um, yeah, just have an expression of all that I'm feeling on the inside, you know, whereas whereas maybe other people might become more muted. Does right. that make so sense?
3: That's where tears are suppressed and...
1: Yeah, crying in the shower. Uh, yeah. yeah, all yeah. that. Um. So
4: are there, like, any un- any, I would say, trauma-induced um, I would say behaviors or mental illness that's unique to women of color. You know, like I, I know like all women experience, you know, all types of women experience things like sexual trauma, but are there things that you know or witness that are pretty unique to women of color?
1: I would say the primary one that I would see, I don't know that there are any that are specifically unique to women of color, um, aside from just that that racial trauma. Like the the trauma from being black and brown you know in a country where you were consistently and very systemically oppressed against and um and then also the re-trauma re-traumatization that we experience of like seeing videos of black and brown people being killed and you know hearing these stories and you know learning about uh, often like oftentimes our story begins in the books with slavery and you know all of that stuff and so that definitely uh, manifests, you know, when you see that manifest in trauma. So it's differently on how we have to treat those types of individuals, right? Like, it, you know, in the past, one might say, oh, this person has religious preoccupation or this person has, like, paranoia around police, right? And it might be looked at as, like, you can completely pathologize that and say, oh, yeah, that's just, you know, their their mental illness. But when it's rooted in reality, like, of course, yes, your fear is justified, police or you know um uh you know that that um, fear in the workplace or anxiety that you feel when you're in corporate America is valid, right? So these are very unique situations I think that impact the the baseline um, diagnoses that we see on a very different level. So not specifically different diagnoses but a different manifestation of a diagnosis right. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah
4: it makes so I mean there are times where uh, you know, just going into work, it's like, you know, after, you know, like I remember me specifically when Fernando Castile passed away and I had like a meeting, I had to go into work and it's like, I don't want to deal with anyone right now. Like it was hard to go on and put on a smile and just have and act like what just happened didn't happen right. and, and being around people that didn't feel like this was uh, an issue. Like, they weren't shocked and appalled and and sad the way that I was. And so I do agree. Like, it's just an added layer into the everyday that, you know, just the the general person would go through on a daily basis. But I think because I'm a woman of color, that that just kind of added something else (laughs) that I had to deal with Mm -hmm. to my pile.
1: You know what I mean? And it can be very isolating, you know, because if you figure you're in a corporate America setting and everyone's acting like it's fine, You know, so you're not getting any validation for what you're feeling, but you're very impacted by it. You know, it's a very isolating experience. And so that certainly takes its toll on um, an individual's psyche and how they're managing that trauma. I think, you know, I think with the awareness that's being spread now, I won't be surprised if there's more research done around it and if we start to see um, some more um, ways of treating it and, you know, specific diagnoses, even maybe, but we don't yet have
0: it. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I'm happy to see that it, it is changing, like that stigma around getting seeking therapy and getting help. Like it wasn't even that long ago, like you would not tell anyone that you had a therapist, right? But mm-hmm. now people are like, hey, I have a therapist, <laughs> you know, like, they're really proud of it now. Oh. And, mm-hmm. and so I think it's wonderful. I Honestly, think that even if you don't have like a diagnosable mental illness, I think it's good for everyone to take time to just speak to someone who's impartial, who has the experience, expertise to help you through the stresses of life.
1: Right, absolutely, and in a safe place where they can't repeat it. And if they do, you can sue them. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Right? like I know I can come to you and I can tell you anything as long as it doesn't involve hurting myself or anybody else. You know, and I know that it's safe. I am protected. You know, it's truly a safe space. And then when you have, you know, for a lot of people of color, they want to work with other people of color. So when you have someone Mm -hmm. else that you can connect with from your community, that's even better. It's just a conversation. It's just a conversation around your healing. It's a beautiful thing.
3: And that's a whole other thing is having people that you can relate to and identify with and that you feel comfortable Talking to because you know there's we know that there's such a shortage of you know um, people of color in your space who um, you know who can provide that that outlet for people so that's another challenge but again I see more and more you know people filling that void and and choosing that as a career path which um, I love to see so thank
0: you
1: yeah we Mm -hmm. out here there is a shortage of minority Mm -hmm. therapists but I think that that's changing very rapidly which is exciting yeah. yeah I mean primarily before you know it was white people <laughs> you know yeah. and not to say that they're bad but they would a lot of times especially out of school be you know um, uh, taking on roles or positions where like they're like community based counseling and so they would be going into neighborhoods that are black and brown and you know working with families and there would oftentimes be a disconnect or just that mistrust like who is this white person mm-hmm. sitting in yeah. my living room you know um and it would be hard for them because they want to help but it's like i can't connect yeah. with this person they don't this family cannot understand. connect yeah, yeah. Like, i want to go
3: in and talk about racial trauma to the right. person that i feel it's, like is
2: you, you look know, like part of like
3: the, the that community person. that is imposing exactly. that exactly yeah
2: and you cannot ask that question so how does that make you feel absolutely. that will pee me off
1: absolutely, <laughs> so, <yeah>. absolutely. <laughs> you know so um so it is it's changing especially with 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 Black women, there's just so many of us um, not just black, but black and brown. I know I keep saying that, but I really want to, like, we out here, we really are, you know, doing this work and getting this education in droves. It's exciting to see these younger generation um, you know, people from younger generations who are so fired up and like wanting to take on these roles that are going to help empower their people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. I mean, like we I out here, imagine. you know, becoming lawyers and not to say that we weren't before, but it certainly lit a fire.
3: I can say, yeah, so I would like, agree.
1: Time to play these games. We have to, we have to be here in support of yeah. our community. We got to build ourselves up. So, yeah. you know, it's changing. It's definitely been a shortage. Um, I'll say being an, an African-American therapist, they always talk about, oh, you have to find your niche when you become a therapist in private practice. But just being a black woman was my niche. Like I, Exactly. I know that's right. I, yes. I know that's right. Man, I opened my website and I put my little shingle out and people's kicking my door. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm <laughs> sure. They've been waiting, yeah. They've been yeah. waiting
3: well, to yeah. uh, find someone who looked like them. And like we said, that they felt they could relate to and understood where they were coming from, who had a similar background and story as them like that's how we choose our friends that's how we choose our peers that's who we're drawn to people who we have shared experiences with so why would we Mm -hmm. expect anything different from someone we want to be super vulnerable and emotional Mm -hmm. with and to bear our our souls and our deepest darkest secrets you know that's 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 completely understandable so what advice would you give to someone who's listening to this podcast and has been contemplating you know, Therapy has, has pulled up a website or two and scrolled, but just hasn't, you know, picked up the phone and made that call or, or clicked, you know, the submit button on, on the online form on a website, like just to get them over the hump and help them feel comfortable about taking that first step.
1: Yeah, I would just encourage them to keep going. You know, there is a reason why you are seeking this information out. You know, just go with that. Don't Don't doubt it. It's just a conversation you know it's just you going in there and you sharing what you feel comfortable sharing with i would definitely encourage that person to be very very proactive in who they work with so interview your therapist Mm -hmm. ask your therapist what is your theoretical approach what's your style um you know how long does it usually take what can i expect um if you don't feel a connection with that therapist you do not have to work with that therapist there are so many um you know that, that are out there who have so many different approaches um, and so be empowered in knowing that you are the one who's going in there. Be very intentional. This is your time. This is your investment. Um, you know, but I would certainly encourage you to, to do that work and to, you know, not be afraid to take that step because it is investment in, in your own um, quality of life and your own peace of mind. Mm. And, you know, if we're talking about oppression and we're talking about all of the things that have held our community down, this Is a form of resistance. Us living well is a form of resistance, Us, you know, having um, our sanity and right, it's just very much, very much our way of resisting. Right, people think you got to be in the streets, you got to be out there, you know, fight. And this is a way to fight is to be well because it, it sets the tone for the future generations of your family and all the other little black and brown people who are watching you, yeah. you know, manage things in a healthier way. It really um, for there to be a shift, because you figure you do this work now, when you go on to raise your own children, they're going to be healthier, because you're going to be able to give them those tools that you learned for yourself, right, so this is how we heal ourselves,
0: you know, so so
1: powerful,
4: but you, you know, like, people, and it kind of, when I hear it, I'm like, no, when they say, oh, we have a family curse, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, it, it's, when you say it's a family curse, it almost sounds like it's, some outside force putting right. a on your family right. <laughs> that you have but no control. To change. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But that's no, I think it's problem. just that, you know, like that trauma that's passed down and you just need to be that generation to say, you know what? I'm not going to follow in the footsteps right. of my parents, right. and my the grandparents. Yeah. Like I'm going to get help right. and I'm going to do better for my offspring and, and for the generations to come. That's
1: right. I, and even healing older generations, not to cut you off. I'm sorry. I'm but like, it. like for instance, my grandmother, she, um, she kind of set the tone for my family to we didn't talk about emotion like they they didn't Mm -hmm. talk about anything things that hurt trauma abuse that they experienced all of it but you don't talk about it especially the women Mm -hmm. you gotta keep going and then here I come I'm feeling all the things I'm crying for everybody all the time Mm -hmm. and they hated it you know they hated it I was my my whole life you letting out family secrets oh (laughs) they would would before school Aaliyah don't you tell no family (laughs) but I didn't understand um you know, just not having that empathy, I always felt all the things and then I went to school, I became educated, and you know, later on down the road in my own healing journey, my grandmother was inspired by that. And so now here she wants to start talking to me and seeing her cry about things, and it's crazy because she was never that person. You know, so not only does it inspire the younger generations of your family, but the older generations are also watching. Mm, and a lot that's of people give me to allow themselves to just be vulnerable <laughs> in that way. So and I see, I see older women too have been holding on to trauma and secrets their entire life, and it's amazing to see them take it off.
4: Mm-hmm. You should normalize like recommending people seek help. You know, like we do them every day. You doing at work, grocery store, like you know, it'd be normal to be like, you know what, call Leah. <laughs> <laughs> this,
3: this is like, who I because you
4: know, like you deal with people all the time. It's like you know what. It's you need some help. Like you got something going on that's making you come into this office every day acting like this. Yeah. So, so
3: what would th- be your recommendation <laughs> on how to No, but seriously, <laughs> I, I I see what she's saying and I identify with that. But how do we do that in a non-offensive way? And you know, because clearly they got some stuff that they're dealing with. So I can see being defensive as, you know, a normal reaction, but But I'm here for it. Like, how do we start that trend (laughs) of of diplomatically (laughs) recommending that you go get your ass some
2: help? I would think there would have to be some level of trust between the two
4: people. Does it have to be? I think it has to. Or else (laughs) that's
2: where you you get defensive. Like, if this random person who never checks on me just says, you know what? I think you need help. I'm going to cuss you out. (laughs) But if it's a a friend, like, you know, someone that's on this call or even a professional that's saying, hey, I'm noticing that you're acting a little bit differently. I think that you may need to go sit on somebody's couch. I would take that a little bit better than just some
4: random associate. What if like me. on mental health day? You know, like on Valentine's <laughs> oh Day, you have God. like anonymous no, cards yeah, and like do not time. No, like, do but this.
0: also
3: coworkers, <laughs> we spend a lot of time with our coworkers. So yeah. it was interesting. I was on a meeting yesterday and we were talking about how, you know, we're on meetings and, and interacting with people virtually now because of COVID, right? But we what is missing is that someone is walking into the office and you notice that they're you know a little more down or not as peppy their walk is slower their shoulders are slumped it's all of these um non-verbal things that you may just see and, ob- and observe and mm-hmm. don't really have those cues anymore in this current environment to really see how people are doing but we do we spend a lot of time with our coworkers, so in that oh. situation, it wouldn't be as random. But yeah, if you oh, at the no. checkout counter in the in the supermarket, be like, hmm,
0: <laughs> yeah. "I would oh, do
2: that." that. <laughs> you look a little down. You, you have look a little down.
3: So aren't you snippy? But you know I what? You're know. projecting here. Why don't you go? <laughs>
2: here, I have a
3: recommendation for you.
2: So, Aaliyah, I have a question for you. Um, so, I'm in the military and um, our suicide rates are increasing drastically over the years. And so we receive all this training on, you know, the warning signs and how to be like this help agent to these people. Do you think that there's a way really that you can stop someone from committing suicide? And if so, what what are those tools that you can give someone who notice, you know, notices the sign to, to kind of help out?
1: Um, so I absolutely believe that you can stop someone from committing suicide. A lot of times they just need someone to listen because uh, when you are in that place, Again, it's very isolated, and so you you feel, you get to feeling like, you know, people will be better off with me, nobody really cares, no one really values me, or I don't add any value to my relationships. And so the way that you can support someone that you're noticing is showing some signs, and that looks like withdrawing from, you know, socialization, maybe giving things away. Sometimes it looks like happiness when they're usually like their baseline might be sadness and then all of a sudden they're happy. That can be mm-hmm. an intention mm-hmm. as well
0: because mm-hmm.
1: they could have made the decision to, you know, so, so it could be dangerous um, if they're coming out of a depression because now they got the energy to commit the suicide mm. um, as opposed to just. And they see that go. out.
3: Yeah. And they're excited right. about that out. Yeah. That's interesting.
1: Right. So what you can do, you know, is just approach the person. Hey, what's going on? I noticed, you know, that you seem like you, you've you fallen back a little bit. I haven't you know, heard much from you or you seem like you're not really engaging as much. Or, you know, I just love to reach out to you. How you doing? What's going on? Um, you know, the person might try to push you away. But if you have that type of relationship or it maybe even if you don't, you know, try to be more persistent. Sometimes it might look like just sitting with that person and not offering any advice because sometimes that's not helpful. They just need mm-hmm. to sit in silence with them. So maybe it looks like sitting in silence with them and holding their hand, you know, metaphorically and like helping them find the resources. Um, You know, I think nothing beats just being there and then going from there saying, okay, well, you know, now that you feel safe enough to open up with me or to let me just sit with you in this pain, you know, let's look at seeing how we can get some support for you or how would you feel if, you know, we did this, we can go together, we can, you know, not go to therapy together, but like, I can, you know, wait for you in the office maybe if you're close enough or, um, you know, maybe you know i could take you to crisis or you know have somebody just check you out because i value you and i want to make sure that you're safe
0: you know keep you here
1: so
3: you know what that builds on something that you said earlier uh in our conversation about when you you know decide to go to therapy you build a support system as you do the work and this touches on that i think it's that just you know underscores how important it is to have a village of people and have a team who are supporting you and who you can lean on and who were holding you accountable like you know we have that support system in so many other areas of our life right so this is just one other thing that will help push us across the the finish line and help um you know complete that journey and do the work
1: absolutely and i think a big part of it too is like taking away that stigma right because you know, everybody that self-injures don't want to kill themselves, and everybody who struggles with, you know, suicidality, there are different levels. Some people have right. uh, passive suicidal ideation where, you know, they don't have an active plan to kill themselves, but if I die, I'm cool with it, you know? Mm, right. It's just I don't mm. care, I'm just waiting, you know, till my time passes, or, um, you know, things like that, or sometimes people do have a plan, and so if you are in a position to sort of assess for it, that's asking questions like, well, you know, what's your plan? Do you have the means to do it? Do you have any access to any weapons? And you know, you don't have to certainly ask those questions if you don't feel comfortable. Those are more professional assessment questions. But it's normalizing it. And like it's okay to, to say that you're feeling this way, you know, but it doesn't mean that you that you have to go through this alone. Right? I'm not afraid to have this conversation with you. I'm not gonna freak out if you tell me, hey, I'm having these thoughts that, you know, are making me feel really crazy right now. You know, yeah. I think that people feel like when I have these dark thoughts I can't tell nobody because I don't want to scare people that I love you know or I don't want people to judge me or I don't want to push anybody away so I, I just have to sit on these feelings and then they grow deeper or they sink deeper and deeper into that um, you know depressive suicidal ideation
0: yeah. you know
1: mindset so really normalize yeah. the conversation.
2: I think uh, mental health is definitely something that the military has to get their hands around, like get a hold of. And being that you also come from a military background, what are are some suggestions that you would give if you were able to to help them come up with some type of plan of action to fix the mental health issue within the military?
0: Sure.
1: I think, I mean, I, I know that they are trying to make efforts But I don't know about how safe they feel, right? Because I remember um, considering a job on the military base where I would work as a counselor for soldiers, and they were permitted to come in and tell you things, but they didn't have to give you their name, and you didn't write any clinical notes. So that helped them to feel like they were anonymous and, you know, keep their autonomy like I have this going on. But then how Mm -hmm. much can I really help you if you're walking out of my office and I'm not supposed to you know, um, follow up or I don't have your information or anything like that. So it's tricky because I think soldiers don't feel safe enough to talk about this. Right. Um, you know, they don't feel safe enough to talk about this issue or like addiction, right? Like they don't feel yeah. safe enough. A lot of times. Because your career is connected to exactly. it. Exactly. So then you, yeah. it looks like a punishment because now mm-hmm. I have to do this program or my exactly. rank, you know, is going to be affected or, you know, I'm 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 not going to be able to progress in my, my career. And so that's a scary <laughs> that's scary, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't, I think that soldiers, I don't know if soldiers are allowed to get outside therapy or if they have to do it within the military um, structure, but I think that they should be allowed to get therapy outside of the military. I don't think that they should have to do it through um, the military because I think that that fear is very valid and very real of like, you know, my job is on the line here. Um, I think that there needs to be more in-home-based support for the families uh, you know, going in the families or going into the, the households and, like, assessing for what's going on and how you can support the family. And, like, understanding that they still might not tell you nothing because they don't trust you, you know, yeah. but you're but you're there to offer support and information. And just, I think, I don't know, the military just has to find a way for these inju- individuals to feel safe enough to report this stuff because there's so much riding on that, right? It's mm-hmm. like the fear of the person who provides your life mm-hmm. your job is real. And so then yeah. the family pressure you have of not saying nothing when this when your you know father is beating you up every night or, you know, beating mommy up and all of that stuff. That it's a lot. It's a lot to deal with. And there's no safe space at all within that structure to talk about it. So. Yeah. I wish I had a better answer for that. Now we're looking at veterans with mental health issues and addiction that never got the mm. yeah, like it's, There's a lot of work.
3: Never ending cycle, yeah.
1: yeah.
2: Wow. I will definitely say I think that the Air Force has, you know, taken leaps and bounds to um, come up with. Uh, different programs for mental health but I still think overall the military as a whole we have a long way to go.
5: I must say that I uh, think that this generation uh, what I mean by this generation is the millennials and on are doing a normalizing it and doing a way better job than we have in the past. Um, I just seem to know anybody younger than me seems to have a therapist um, on call?
2: (laughs) I was going to say, I think it's almost faddish now for the younger generation. It's funny because, you know, at times we say that music doesn't influence us, and then there are other times we feel that, yes, music has the potential to influence us. For the younger generation, it does seem like they're always sad and they're depressed, and their music is sad and depressive and pills and All these different things are like flooding, you know, within their eardrums on a daily basis. What do you say about that? Because should we... Should we accept the fact that they're in tune with their emotions? Are you really depressed or is this just a fad Mm. that you're going through, you know, in this generation to where it's cool to be sad and be depressed and write these depressive posts on social media because it gets you all these likes? Like, what do you do as a parent?
1: Mm. So as a parent, I would just recommend having a conversation and normalizing it you know so you know that looks like oh you know i noticed the you, you're listening to this or you know i know this song what do you what is it about to you what does it mean to you why do you connect with it um you know it, it can be very scary but in a lot of ways it can also be a safe space for the kids to connect with what they're feeling mm-hmm. you know if they're holding in a lot of stuff and they don't really have the words a lot of times children don't have the words to express they might not have the emotional intelligence just yet to express what it is that they're feeling and so sometimes the music i'd say a lot of times the music gives them that ability to understand it and not feel so alone because here this you know this musician also experiences but, you know, it also has that part of it where it's influencing. And so it's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm taking this on because I'm a fan of this person. And that lifestyle is, you know, um, reckless drug use. You know, I don't care what happens. I'm down, you know, whatever the case may be. And so, again, I think as a parent, the best thing to do is, you know, if they're going to listen to it, they're going to listen to it, but have a conversation around it. I remember um, with my sisters, I helped raise my three sisters, and I was very concerned about the sexualization of... Um, black and brown women in um, hip hop music videos, and I tried to shield them from it for as long as I could. And then, of mm. course, I couldn't. And they, when they realized, oh, you just assisted. It's a sister. The battle, you're not going to win. You <laughs> can even moming. I'm going to listen to what I want. So then it was like, well, I'm not going to keep fighting it, but I'm going to communicate. I'm going to open up conversations. So, educate- with yeah. black, right? so what do what it, what is what do you think about what it is that you're seeing? How do you feel when you see these images? And you know. Um, explain to them that, you know, this is, this is just a part of this image that they kind of are selling. This is a part of their brand and you need to understand how much of it is, is real and how much of it isn't. And, and you know, um, understanding that a woman's sexuality doesn't have to look like that. It's not something that needs to uh, be performative for the, the gaze of, you know men or these rappers and things like that so there was a lot of conversation that I had with them about it because I couldn't fight them listening to it Mm -hmm. it's it's all around them but I wanted them to be informed as they were listening to it so that they had some sort of leverage to help them understand that this is not what my reality needs to look like this is entertainment
2: I'm so concerned about um, this generation that's coming up right now, and especially with everything that all the pressures around them, because even in the music, as we were talking about in the music videos, I think as we were growing up, the messages were given to us a little bit more indirectly. Mm -hmm. Uh, We probably had like five songs, maybe like Uncle Luke's Scarred, where it told us directly, uh, (laughs) you know. But um, the messages now, they're very direct. You know exactly what it is um, that they're trying to tell you. And I just think for young girls, as you said, for your sisters, I think they have so many pressures out there of who they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to look like, you know, how they're supposed to carry themselves. And I think even that can cause um, a little mental um, instability because you're still trying to find yourself. Yeah. Um, in a sense. So I it's, I think it's so hard. It and is, then
3: you add on the layer of social media and Thank
1: you. how yeah. that
3: just. Yeah. yeah the body you know,
1: dysmorphia of how, you know, your body is supposed to look. Right. And listen, I'll be the first person to say that I definitely have trauma that I still struggle with from my exposure to hip hop culture as a teenage girl and a young girl. Yeah.
0: Right.
1: I, I, like, it's real. You know, some of the stuff I can't even listen to anymore because it's triggering. So, um, Mm -hmm. it's a real concern to have because in a lot of ways, um, it can be damaging to the psyche of a developing, um, boy or girl about Mm -hmm. what sexuality looks like, what courting is supposed to look Mm -hmm. like. And that's not even like, you know, you got to court in the traditional sense, but like just the expression of interest in someone, you know, and how that's supposed to look and, and all of these things are impacted by that. And Mm -hmm. even just like
4: if, go ahead. So just like, young girls when they feed into that like okay this is what the imagery is supposed to tell me I'm supposed to twerk and I'm supposed to do all these things but then how uh, the response they get like that is also you know could be triggering because Mm -hmm. they're not you're the response yeah you might get some likes but why are you getting likes how are they talking to you how are they treating you and I can see that really affecting someone's self-worth if um, they do this for attention and then the boy or the man or boy <laughs> yeah. responds, and where they only value you just for sex.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And I I can see that really messing with someone's mm-hmm. um, psyche
3: because they internalize that completely differently. They, that, that's enough. They don't identify it as just A sex. Negative, like, they yeah. like me. Yeah. And so I need to keep doing this so I can get, you know. Um, just continue getting that cycle. But I think um, one card com- that I'm hearing is like one, getting the knowledge, like seeking this information, um, seeking out therapists and counselors and licensed professionals who you can have these conversations with and then having those conversations with our friends, with our families. So if you're raising children and they're seeing these images bombarded with, you know, this, this whole social media culture. Um, having those conversations in the home to help balance that out, help them just navigate through all the craziness that is, you know, this world is super, super, super important. It's like Mm -hmm. having the conversation, speaking to each other and having the information to have those informed conversations. So you're having, you know, the, the, the right ones.
1: So, uh, that's so important. Context, you know, context. they understand, um, you know, and meeting them where they are, you know, speaking to them, you know, yes. where they are as opposed to, mm. that's how I, you know, do the work. I work so well with teenagers because I'll meet them right where they are. My sisters keep me young, so it feels like I'm talking to my sisters, yeah. you know, um, and that's definitely a, a blessing to be able to do that. But I got it. I got to meet them where they are, if that even means putting a the therapy on the back burner just to build some rapport so we can talk about this music and we can mm-hmm. talk about, you know, what you see online or whatever. You want to show me some funny memes or whatever that is you know just just meeting you where you are so that you feel safe enough to help you sort out okay right. so, you know i'm seeing this and my friends are doing this and what does it mean and you know i feel like this when i do it or you know i'm noticing that i'm getting some attention this is how it makes me feel or i'm wanting to do this you know this that and the third and and, and helping them sort that out having a safe place yeah. to ask questions because they got questions
3: they got questions they just not asking you, they're asking their it's, friends, and their friends don't know. Yeah, the blindly, <laughs> no, it's
1: like the blind, the blind.
3: It's the blind I the blind <laughs> love that you said that. Yeah. I think that's so important is meeting them where they are. Okay. That is so key because oftentimes parents talk at their kids instead yeah. of talking with them. So that is a key takeaway. Thank you for highlighting that.
5: Awesome. This has been amazing talk. Like this, I think this hits home with everybody. You know, like whether it's personal, whether you know someone, I can I would imagine like this is just one of those things that any and everybody can relate to. So
2: definitely hit home. I have like a lump in my throat (laughs) right now. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I do. But I think that I think it's important and we're able to share this on our platform because Mm -hmm. I wish, you know, and I think that we all can. Um, say the same, you know. At some point in our life, I think everybody needed a Missalia, yes. you know, a therapist. Yeah. Because yes, because it passes down, and I'm glad that this generation does have, you know, more outreach support, mm-hmm. you know, for this topic. Mm-hmm. Because um, I think if we would have fixed it generations before. You know, we, it would be we could have alleviated, earlier. we could have alleviated a lot of trauma that's been passed down from generation mm-hmm. to generation. So I think that this is this is really good.
3: I thank you, Aaliyah, for using your your pain and your own trauma um, and your journey as a catalyst to you know propel you and push you into this space um, and and you know give you the push to help others. Um, and be that person that you wish that you had before. And thank you so much for, for coming on and, and just sharing that journey and sharing these gems with our listeners and our viewers, because I think, you know, more conversations like these, right. It just helps normalize that conversation and, and yeah, it just brings people to the couch. So thank you so much for joining us. This was an awesome conversation, ladies. This thank was, you. Guys. Thank you,
5: Aaliyah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> well, ladies, um. How do we pivot off of depression and mental illness and crushes on robots? And, <laughs> you know, but in all seriousness, um, one of my favorite parts of the show. Kay, what you got for us today for food, for thoughts?
4: And you know, I got a little something. It's, you know, right before the election. So it's along the lines of this common theme. So,
5: mental, mental illness. illness. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <Nice>,
4: basically, <laughs> the election is just a few weeks away, and all the polls suggest that Joe Biden is in for a big win. But let's not get complacent and cocky because we have been here before. We can't forget about that elephant in the room—that damn Electoral College. Remember back in 2016, Hillary Clinton won three million more votes than Trump and lost the Electoral College and the presidency. Biden will have to receive 4.5 million more votes than Trump to have a 75% chance of winning. So let's talk about why the Electoral College is even a thing. The Electoral College was developed so smaller populated states would not be dominated by larger populated states. The southern slave states had large black populations, but since the slaves weren't allowed to vote, these states knew they would have less clout than the northern states in elections. So instead of just freeing the slaves and allowing them to vote like real people, they established the brilliant three-fifths compromise. You know when a black person was only considered three-fifths a man. This apparently solved the South's little electoral issue. Now, America is supposed to be a representative democracy where every vote should be considered equal. But it's not. Think about how it's only a few battleground states that decide every single presidential election we have, like Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Florida. Part of the reason why the Electoral College doesn't work is how it's being used. 48 states have a winner-take-all approach, which was adopted to gain political advantage, awarding all electors to the candidate with the most votes to essentially erase the voice of all the voters in that state who didn't vote for the top candidate. All states except Maine and Nebraska give all of their electors to the candidate who wins the state's popular vote, regardless of how wide or narrow the victory is. This freezes out minority parties from gaining any representation in the Electoral College and drastically magnifies the significance of a handful of votes in a few swing states. Now, this hurts everyone, regardless of political party. For instance, a Republican in New York's vote does not make much practical difference because we already know New York will always go to the Democrats. Same with a Democrat living in Alabama. They already know a Democrat will never win that state and it will always be red. The Electoral College definitely has its problems, but in order to remove it, we would need a constitutional amendment. But the way our Supreme Court is currently set up, <laughs> the New York Knicks will have a better shot at winning the NBA title next year. So we already know it's just a pipe dream. So there's an alternative. Get rid of winner-take-all system in the states. This system is a state law and not mandated by the Constitution, so no amendment is needed. States could choose to award the electoral votes proportionately to their popular vote, ensuring that every vote matters in that state's outcome. Many legal experts say winner-take-all is unconstitutional, illegal, and is in violation of the Voting Rights Act anyway. So just know, for a more proportionate electoral system to work, Every state must remove winner take all and end gerrymandering practices of drawing district lines to gain an advantage. Ending winner take all would be a step in the right direction, making the electoral college vote align more with the popular vote. So what can we do? The same thing I say every week, vote. (laughs) Like I mentioned earlier, Biden needs to get over 4 million more votes than Trump to even have a chance of winning. You can also support equal votes. Equal Votes is an organization that's taken up the legal fight to end winner-take-all in the states. And, of course, I provided their information in the episode description if you want to know more and if you want to go out and support them. So I'll end it with this. The current system needs to change because the current way the Electoral College works makes it that our democracy is not fair, equal, nor representative because it's clear some votes just matter more than others. So, ladies, I'm nervous. And I have trust issues when it comes to our democracy. Do you all think Biden will pull off an electoral win?
3: I don't. I don't. We saw it happen with Hillary Clinton. She won by, what, two or three million votes. And we saw what happened there. So unfortunately not. The way the system is set Mm -hmm. up now, we, as in Democrats, are set up for failure. Yeah. And I feel like
4: this. they're going to cheat, like, even when they talk about, um, like, they're, they're not even talking about Russia interfering and all the other cheating things. And so, you know, they're not doing anything. And so right. that's what makes me nervous. I think mm-hmm. that if we're just going off popular vote, yeah, he's going to win in the landslide. But all we'll the other alive. little yeah. variables around it, I'm like, they're going to steal this thing. And I'm nervous. And I just can't even wrap my mind around another four years of this. I, I'm not prepared.
3: I'm nervous with you. I, I'm with you there, but I'm just—I can't bring myself to think about it yet. <laughs> and I feel like I need to start now and prepare myself. myself.
4: Enjoy these last
5: few weeks. Hanging on to just this sliver of
4: hope. <laughs>
5: it's the reality. I'm gonna enjoy it until the last day. I'm just gonna proceed as if this is not gonna happen again. And then, if the depression has to start, it starts from the day. Of (laughs) it. Speaking (laughs) of depression. Speaking of yeah, common themes. Yeah.
2: (laughs) I'm hopeful. I I hope that Biden and Harris pull through.
5: Yeah.
3: Well, all right. That is right. I'm I'm gonna
2: try Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see.
3: This wraps up another fantastic. Episode. I am so excited for our viewers and our listeners to get this information to hopefully um, continue or start having those conversations to seek out that help and just in finding your voice. And um, I'm just really, really excited for for everyone to, to digest this one. So we thank everyone again for joining us for another week. This is our seventh episode. We are doing it. Yes. So You know, listen, watch on all of the things, uh, YouTube, uh, Google, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you watch your podcasts and like, follow, subscribe, follow us on IG, Crucial Conversations and um, also... For Miss Aaliyah, who joined us, she can be contacted through her website at theepiphanyroom.com and can be found on Instagram at the underscore epiphany underscore room. So as you can see, she is definitely a wealth of information and a resource to at least start this journey, hopefully, for all of you. But um, definitely come back and see us next week, you all. We love taking this walk with you all. And we'll see you next time.